Support for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center, located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org. Hello and welcome to Health Matters. I am your host and uh, beloved radio health evangelist, Dr. Tony Weaver. Beloved? Yeah, you know. As in dearly beloved? (laughs) (laughs) So it could be that. It's just, you know, some days you feel rip-roaring and some days you don't. And I need an alternative. And so beloved sounds good whether it's true or not. This is the Health Matters Quarantine Show. We have lots of fun facts, puzzles, and mental challenges for you while you're sitting in quarantine or you're trying to avoid any public exposure. Uh, This is a great show to listen to on your own. We don't have a whole lot of thought-provoking things you need to discuss with anyone. Just sit and listen and don't touch anything. Right. Just ponder. Just ponder. Just just ponder. That's a safe activity. Thanks to our listeners at True Talk Internet Radio. Special radio wave to those hardworking folks over at the MSU Ronald G. Eaglin Space Science Center. With me to discuss these things as only she can do. Mostly by her silence. She, I know if I, if I say something that makes her talk, obviously I've made a huge error. But Shelly is very good at acquiescence uh, when I am right, and, and which I am most of the time. Uh, but from the University of Kentucky Physician Assistant Program, Assistant Professor Shelly Irving. Hey, Shelly. Hello. Rick Phillips is once again... Quarantined. <laughs> Poor Rick. <laughs> made the mistake of sneezing on the uh, university president. <laughs> Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> and that basically he'll be quarantined until further notice. Uh, but he, we hope to get him back at some point. Uh, it's uh, been a rough spring, I'll just say that. The uh, website, if you want to listen to our show, that's wmky.org. You can go on there. First of all, they've got a lot of information, up-to-date things uh, about uh, the news, about politics, about things like that. And they also have links to some of the best shows on the radio. There is both their bluegrass music, their uh, news programs, and Health Matters, and A Time for Tales, all of them you can find at WMKY.org. We are trying to keep up with the, at the time we record this, the expanding presence and concerns related to the coronavirus, uh, the COVID-19. We are, uh, in fact, I am posting again on Facebook. I have limited our presence there, but I realize it's the only way to get information out fast, so you might check that. Although, my goodness, Shelly, how many different people are trying or vying to be your coronavirus source right now? Oh, probably seven, eight, nine. It seems like every couple hours I'm getting some sort of new um, news brief or something. Yeah, my, my bank wants me to know how the stock market is doing and what I should do about that. Uh, my Obviously, the hospital, the uh, university, I am involved in so many, oh, the American Medical Association, just about every organization I am involved with, including AARP, because I'm an old man, is uh, telling me about coronavirus. Well, we'll add some stuff. Ours, I will promise you, will be different because we look at things slightly askew. So we're not going to try to tell you how to wear a N95 uh, mask or anything like that, but we will be looking at some things, some uh, scientific publications and expert opinion regarding coronavirus. I will continue to post that. And that's uh, on HM Radio Show. Our sponsor, uh, and again, we're going to try to downplay the information on the coronavirus. One, it's moving rather rapidly, and two, you're already in quarantine, so you 
Might as well uh, learn about something else. You Our, probably know more than we do at this point. <laughs> Absolutely. How does it feel? Just let us know on our Facebook page. The sponsor today, the top 10 causes of death in the U.S. in 2018. Now, they, I, I changed it because this was actually supposed to be in 2020, and they were using 2018 to predict the top causes of death in 2020 by using 2018 data. Well, that may change. So uh, I decided we will call a spade a spade. All we know is what happened in 2018. And here they are. Uh, the top 10 uh, ranked in order of the percent of total deaths, the number of people who died from this problem. Number 10 is suicide, 48,000 and change deaths every year. That's 1.7% of the total, and it comes in at number 10. Number 9, kidney disease, 51,000 and change deaths, 1.8% of the total. Number 8, influenza and pneumonia, 59,000, 2.1%. And I think, I don't know where the coronavirus uh, deaths, if they occur in numbers, where they would be, I think they would be added to the influenza and pneumonia. These are uh, respiratory infectious deaths. And unfortunately, even in 2018, the, uh, the to- this total, it was moving up in our top 10 list. Number seven is diabetes. 84,000. So we've moved up now from 48,000 to 84,000, 3% of all deaths due to diabetes. And it really, it has not changed from year to year. Alzheimer's disease, 122,000, 4.3%. And that actually, the death rate decreased in 2018, down from 2017. But as we age, this is going to continue to be, I think, a top 10 cause of death. And number five, cerebrovascular diseases, that is stroke and bleeding into the brain, 147,000, 5.2% of all deaths. The good news, the rate of the deaths from these diseases has decreased uh, since 2017 and I think uh, continues to decrease. So that is our top 10 causes of death. We gave you the bottom, I think I went ahead and gave you the bottom six on that, and we will finish out with the top four in our next fractional portion. Now, the first thing I wanted to talk about, that I, I got this off the BBC. Uh, this was March 3rd. The high-tech things that China is doing to try to address the coronavirus. Now, how long has it been in China now? Because it broke there first, right? So they've had a little longer to work on tech right. and a response. Yeah. First of all, their response was, uh, it was characterized by a, basically a, a government centralized response in that the cities and factories were shut down. Employees were diverted to uh, different workplaces uh, where they were needed. They have total control of everything, and uh, they had the people do the things uh, that they wanted them to do. In the U.S., uh, such a response is not possible, but the question is, how far does the government go? And we are all about to find that out as we uh, get further into this epidemic, uh, possibly pandemic, of viral illness. Now, what they have, first of all, they have disinfecting robots, uh, and they had drones that would spray disinfectant. I think that's that's a show. You think about, you know, what would happen if you sprayed disinfectant from the air? Nothing. Yeah. It's not like you can, uh, the disinfectant can root out the virus or anything like that. They did have, and I like this, they had smart helmets. The police wore helmets with a camera on the side that had thermal imaging, and it would tell you the temperature of anybody within five meters, uh, basically uh, a little bit less than uh, 10 yards away. You look at them, and uh, they, like in uh, Predator, in these movies, or in the, uh, some of the videos you've seen of uh, soldiers with night vision, they, they would light up thermally. And if they were red, and there was a number, I, when I, they've got a, I put this on our Facebook page, there was a temperature number that showed up over that person if you looked at them. 
And so you can tell uh, who's and they you combine that with facial recognition. You not only know that this person has a fever, you actually know who it is, too, and where they live. Using that, then, they have an app that you could track how close you were exposed to people who later turned out to have a fever. That is, you know, you could, by going up and powering up this app, it would uh, go and retrieve the people you have been, your phone had been close to. And uh, if your phone had been close to somebody with a fever, it would let you know that you might have been exposed. This is creepy. Yeah, it's it's creepy. It's it's interesting. It's fascinating. You could see potential benefits, but you could see how it could be misused as well or just, it's just creepy to be, to get a text saying that, you were close to somebody who was sick, you know? Yeah, and we think, you know, we all now have smartphones because they help us out. In China, they have an app that it it turns your phone, the, the screen of your phone turns a different color depending on what you are allowed to do. Are you a healthcare worker? Are you a government employee? Are you just a peon who has no rights whatsoever? It will turn a different color. And so if you are out and about doing something, they can check your phone and see whether or not you're supposed to be doing the thing that you're doing. So if you're on quarantine, uh, that I think turns red. If you are a, a, a healthcare worker and you need to be uh, allowed free access uh, to visit people in the hospital, then uh, that you have a different color for that. So once again, if you if you have a very authoritarian regime, you have a, uh, everything is centralized, then uh, you can using you can use tech uh, to keep people safe. But who's who's monitoring the tech? Where's the <laughs> ethics board? That's that's sitting back and making sure that this tech is being used in the appropriate way. Because that would be the question here, right? I mean, if all of a sudden our our governor here in Kentucky said, hey, we're pushing out this app, just like an emergency thing, and it's going to notify you if you're within so much of a distance of someone who... And the police may ask to see your phone to see if you have clearance or authority to go to this place. And if you have been close to someone, your phone will notify the police that you have. Plus, the police are going to be actually they're going to be photographing you and taking your temperature as you walk down the street. You, You think about that level of invasion of privacy. First of all, it is a great way to track a viral infection and it might save civilization. But safety is always, it might save civilization from the virus. I guess it's the way to... Well, you know, and it could also, um, you know, if you, you set up perimeters and it could notify the authorities if you leave quarantine, if you break your quarantine. You know, there's the, the yeah. flip side of it as well. So What it means then is it sounds to me like you cannot travel without your phone because mm-hmm. uh, you will need it for clearance. Uh, on the other hand, your phone is there to monitor you and tell on you. If you do something that the government does not want you to do. It's your passport and ankle bracelet all in one. <laughs> Humble. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. It, it is uh, It is something we need to think about. I mean, already, obviously, from a corporate standpoint. And, you know, when I saw this, we've talked about this facial recognition stuff. They're able to now to mathematically do some uh, image adjustment that will cancel out distortion from atmosphere, from air. So they can recognize facial features at extreme distances. That is, if you know, if, if you are on the horizon, uh, they may be able to figure out who you are. I, I, I forgot the exact distance, but uh, no longer are your features fuzzed out by air movement or air turbulence. First of all, the company said, well, we would absolutely, we will not use this unless for only for security purposes, so forth. But already one of the uh, corporate executives actually used facial recognition to figure out who was dating his daughter. <laughs> 
Oops. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in that sense, you know, uh, there is that uh, sense of privilege among uh, people who are extremely wealthy or, or in powerful positions. And so the idea that it would only be used for good or it only be used with a court order or something. I mean, we've seen all that fall by the wayside. Uh, pretty much after 9-11. And so uh, any, uh, it looks to me like uh, if we, we have this facial recognition technology, if China has these things, you can, you can look at what they're doing for the virus and you can kind of see where the U.S. is headed. I think we are, we are building this security state and uh, they are ahead of us on it, but we are not that far behind them in terms of our capabilities and, and our possibilities is the way I would put it. Well, and, and at least at least these conversations need to happen. You know, we're seeing how this technology is being used. Uh, we're already having struggles on our, our universities across the, the country, you know, what to do with students and how to track and figure out who's been where and who's at risk and who's not and who might need quarantine. You know, those conversations need to be happening now. All right. We're going to take a break. First of all, don't touch your nose. Why don't you go ahead, wash your hands, disinfect the area, and come back for our second fractional portion. You're listening to Health Matters on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hi, and welcome back to the second fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. This is the Health Matters Quarantine Show. That's right. We are right there, theoretically, keeping you company in your quarantine. There's no other place we'd rather be. <laughs> Over the airways. Now, understand... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't call us. <laughs> we'll just keep broadcasting. You keep listening, and we are best friends on the radio. That's the way we do this. Our sponsor for the second time, Top 10 Causes of Death in the United States in 2018. I want you to know what type of things are are still preventing us from uh, reaching the lifespan we want. And let's go back to, uh, and, and go over these. First of all, number 10 is suicide. 48,000 people, 1.7% of all deaths. One of the problems is uh, suicide can take a lot of years away, a lot of productive years of life away, because suicide is one cause of death that affects young people as well as older people. Number nine is kidney disease. Number eight, influenza and pneumonia. And I think that number will jump substantially this year. I think the coronavirus is going to go into that basket when they figure out causes of death. It's already 2.1% of all deaths, number eight on the top 10 causes of death. Number seven, diabetes. Number six, Alzheimer's disease. And number five, cerebrovascular disease, which is stroke and bleeding into the brain. Um, and aneurysms and things like that uh, uh, are the cerebral vascular disease. We're up to number four. Number four, chronic lower respiratory diseases. Now, chronic meaning these are long-term conditions of the lungs. Most of that is going to be emphysema. Uh, we call it also chronic obstructive lung disease, or COPD is a word we've used. The incidence of that in 2018, we had 159,486 people. So now we're getting into, into some pretty big numbers, and that was 5.6% of all deaths due to those lower respiratory diseases. Now, some of that uh, comes from occupations. Some people uh, have occupations that are rough on their lungs. Uh, a lot of it from smoking. Uh, the single largest chunk of that is from smoking. It is then mostly preventable. We could knock that number down. Uh, but, and, and it is falling somewhat, uh, uh, but uh, it dropped below accidents 
and unintentional injuries, but still, that is a lot of people, uh, almost 160,000 people. That is uh, leads us to number three. Number three is accidents and unintentional injuries. This is this is a real grab bag. It's everything from car crashes and falls uh, to drug overdoses. They're considered accidents for purposes of death statistics. It fell by 2.8 percent, uh, largely and due to reductions in the number of deaths from drug overdoses. Uh, first of all, I think you know we we've worked really hard on trying to reduce the number of people addicted to drugs. We also are better at treating these type of drug overdoses. Uh, and we've got it down. We got it down to 167,000 people, 5.9 percent of all deaths. Uh, and as I said, that's not just drug overdoses, but it's also car crash, falls, gun deaths are there, both gun violence and if it's not clear suicide, uh, people that shoot themselves accidentally. That would be uh, uh, on number three. And then the big two. So this we've gone from 48,000 with suicide up to 167,000 from uh, num- uh, with number three accidents and unintentional injuries. Then we jump to 590. 9,000, 21% of all deaths, cancer. Now, the cancer death rate fell slightly between 2017 and 2018, still the number two killer in the U.S., and far and away led by lung cancer still. Now, this is, if you think about this, I mean, even in the state of Kentucky, we've got an overall smoking rate of around 25%. Even in the state of Kentucky, 75% of the people in the state of Kentucky are not going to get lung cancer. I mean, there are non-smokers who get lung cancer, but that's really pretty rare. If you are not a smoker, not exposed to smoke, your risk of lung cancer is small. I don't worry, now that the hospital finally went smoke-free back in the 90s, I don't worry that I will die of lung cancer. Do you? No. No. no, I mean, it's just if you don't smoke and, and you're not around smokers all the time, it is very unlikely. So you think about it. This causes far more deaths than any other type of cancer. It's like the next two or three causes of cancer, breast cancer in women, colon cancer in women and men, prostate cancer in men, and pancreatic cancer, all those combined still um, barely equal up to lung cancer, and yet three-quarters of the population across the entire United States will not get it. So if you do smoke, this is just absolutely devastating. The attack rate on this thing is incredible. And that leads then the uh, 599,000 deaths we get from uh, cancer overall, 21% of the, of the uh, uh, of all deaths uh, in 2018 were due to cancer. And then number one, heart disease, 655,000, 23.1% of all deaths, most commonly caused by diseases of the arteries to the heart and uh, heart attacks, and then also valvular heart disease. Uh, one fourth, just about one fourth of all deaths come from heart disease. It fell slightly, and it has been consistently dropping uh, since uh, really since the late uh, 60s and uh, early 70s. We've seen a, a steady decline. What's interesting is, though, we have so many things like uh, the uh, uh, bypass surgery, the cholesterol pills, the changes in the way we treat high blood pressure. Uh, first, the balloon angioplasty, and then the balloon angioplasty with the stents to hold the arteries open. You can't see, if you trace that curve downward, you can't see any sudden drops, despite the fact we have amazing technology. It appears that a lot of it relates to lifestyle and and whether or not you get these diseases. And so, once again, the importance of regular exercise, a reasonable diet, and maintaining your blood pressure. Or even aging, right? Because it's thought if you live long enough, either your heart or cancer is is what's going to get you, right? So that could be top a, two a causes far and away, yeah. Significant cause of those those top two could just be age and the, eventually the the numbers just get you. That is our sponsor, the top 10 causes of death in the United States. Something to ponder 
while you're sitting in quarantine. This was an editorial in the American Medical Association Journal, March 3rd, talking about drug prices. And I'm going to, I think especially as we start getting uh, deeper into the election cycle, I want you to realize some of the issues related to the prices of prescription drugs. Um, I don't think, frankly, I do not think any candidate from either party has a workable solution to this problem. They will talk about it, and we will talk about it as well. According to the 2019 Kaiser Family Foundation Public Opinion Poll, a nationally representative random sample, one in four people in the U.S. has difficulty in paying the cost of prescription medicines. I believe that. I have no problem believing that. And this is the discouraging thing. People who reported the greatest difficulty in their prescription medicines, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, they were the people who needed them the most. If you take four or more prescription drugs, you spend more than $100 or more per month on your drugs, and you're also going to be in fair, only fair or poor health. So the sickest people take the most medicines and spend the most money. And those are the people who can least afford to be spending that much money on drugs. Right. And do you think that number is, how accurate do you think that number is? Like what I mean is, you know, that's self-report people who own up to it, right? Mm -hmm. So there may be people who don't own up to that because they might be embarrassed or maybe maybe they stretch their medicines out so they don't really consider that not taking them. Yeah. Depending on how they ask the question. Well, we've certainly, uh, uh, especially in, in cancer treatment, they, they have found that this is a significant problem where people just can't afford the prescription. So they walk away from a, a treatment that would be beneficial, possibly, uh, I won't say cure, but certainly would improve their condition substantially, but they just don't have enough money to afford it. And bankruptcy among people with, who have cancer, mm-hmm. uh, the bankruptcy rates are extremely high to the point where some oncology units are now uh, doing counseling, financial counseling, because uh, people just run out of money. These, uh, a lot of these cancer drugs are $100,000 a year, and you might be taking two or three of them. And, and no one has that kind of uh, spending money, even people who are fairly wealthy. Well, and you or your spouse or adult children may have to physically relocate for a time to go through the treatment, right? So their their loved one is hospitalized, receiving right. the treatment. Well, now they're living in a hotel for a month. or Yeah. And that's going to put a strain on family finances, the, the uh, hospitalizations, the clinic, and so forth. And then you throw in the outrageous cost of these medicines, and we are picking on our poorest and our sickest citizens and asking them to foot the bill uh, for these expensive medicines. Now, in response to that, this editorial mentions several things that have happened. One, the House of Representatives passed uh, House Resolution 3, the Elijah E. Cummings Lower Drug Cost Now Act. It allows Medicare to negotiate the price of 250 common drugs every, every year. Medicare right now does not negotiate. It pays what the drug companies tell it to pay. That, that's its only option. So this would allow them to negotiate. negotiate. It caps the payments for drugs in the U.S. at 120% of the average prices in six other countries. So we do benchmark countries and we say, look, we will pay 20% more than them, but no more than that. And then for most, for many drugs, I would say for most drugs, we're paying double uh, what uh, other countries are. It would prohibit drug price increases beyond the rate of inflation. And we've seen drugs go up by 1,000 or 1,500% in a single year because somebody corners the market and it's a good business decision to charge as much as possible. It would allow private insurers to purchase drugs at the Medicare negotiated price so that everyone shares that. And then finally, it would cap out-of-pocket drug spending for older adults at $2,000 annually. 
that's nice as an older adult. I think, frankly, no one should have to spend more than $2,000 for their medicines. It's not like the young people are wealthy and have a lot of disposable income either. So, uh, uh, but that's, again, older people vote, younger people don't. So that's how the legislation's passed. Now, that passed the House, but Mitch McConnell said this is socialist price controls on drugs, and he does not plan to take it up in the Senate. So I think that, really, you look at that, and that is a level of government intervention that the Republicans are uncomfortable with. And so I, I, th- I think it's just that is dead in the water, even though those, those things may make sense. Uh, that is a government overreach, according to the Republicans. Meanwhile, there are a bipartisan thing. Chuck Grassley, who's a Republican from Iowa, Ron Wyden have introduced a uh, drug pricing legislation that would place penalties on uh, drug companies if they raise prices faster than inflation. But it uh, doesn't look like that's going to pass either. I know one of the the arguments against capping or lowering the price of drugs is that it will stifle uh, new drug research or creativity that the pharmaceutical companies think they have now to create novel treatments. Has that really shown to be true in these other countries? Well, first of all, we do the, the, the outrageous amounts we pay are obviously we are the chief financier of drug innovation. We're also, though, you, you see all those TV commercials. I mean, if you look at the nighttime TV, they are spending a ton of money to get you to ask your doctor about some drug. And so it turns out that the advertising bills are pretty close to the research and development amounts in a year-to-year fashion. That is, though, expense of the pharmaceutical companies. That is a number that's hard to get at. I will, I will I'll skip ahead because you, you brought it up and, and uh, let you know. A Kaiser Family Foundation opinion poll, again, the same poll, they said uh, 69% of respondents believe that uh, research and development costs were an important contributing factor to high prescription drug costs. So they feel like these uh, companies do have to put a lot of money into research. Uh, there was, in the same issue of the AMA Journal, uh, March 3rd, they looked at the profitability of 35 large pharmaceutical companies compared with 357 non-pharmaceutical companies. That is, is uh, are they, do they just, however they do it, are they making more profits than other partner, uh, other companies that are not involved in pharmaceuticals. During that period, the median profit margin was about double for the pharmaceutical companies compared to the non-pharmaceutical companies. If the non-pharmaceutical companies, if they made a dollar in revenue, if you paid them a dollar in revenue, 7.7, almost 8 cents out of that dollar is going to be profit that they can just use for whatever they want. Everything else pays employees, pays for research, pays for advertising, and so forth. For the pharmaceutical companies, 14 cents. So 8 cents versus 14 cents on the dollar, they are making more money than the non-pharmaceutical. And they're making it off sick people. This is one of the things that bothers me. They actually ought to have less, in my opinion. But Mm -hmm. they do. And they can use that profit, again, for additional research, for advertising, or they just pocket it because it's profit. They can do that. On the other hand, you look at Apple, Microsoft, some of these technology giants, and now they're involved in healthcare. Their profit margins, 19%, 27% for the, in the case of Microsoft. So, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are making out pretty well compared to non-pharmaceuticals, but they're not at the top in terms of their profit margin. Apparently, if you want to really make a ton of money right now, you need to be doing software and electronics. Okay, yeah. that, that's where the big money is. And they're putting that into healthcare, which is going to suck even more dollars away from taking care of patients uh, with, the, with their technology. So none of this is good news, I don't think. The Trump administration has proposed to control prices of prescription drugs. They want to import prescriptions from Canada. 
Bernie Sanders introduced, uh, well, again, he uh, his home state is next to Canada, so he could do that. The Congressional Budget Office estimates you could save $7 billion over the next decade if you brought drugs in from Canada. But Canada doesn't want that because we basically will take all their drugs. We are... We take a lot of drugs. We yeah, do. we take a lot of drugs. We have a lot of people. We would uh, absolutely decimate their pharmaceutical industry. And so, uh, they're, again, this is going to be a very difficult sell. But that was the Trump administration's uh, plan uh, as opposed to actually controlling the prices of drugs here in the U.S. Some states, 35 bills, 22 states require drug price transparency. That is, you, the drug, they have to explain to you how much it costs. The problem is the amount that it costs is not necessarily what you pay. And so the parent, the, tri, the price transparency, it's not clear that that would actually tell you how much you have to pay for each drug because uh, with co-pays, uh, with discount coupons and so forth, the price is constantly shifting. And, and it's not something you can just walk up and say, all right, I need the prices of the top five drugs for my condition. Uh, it, well, it depends on what insurance you have, what uh, discounts you have, and almost what, uh, what phase of the moon is in. Not, not very much good news there. The other thing about drug prices in the uh, between 2007 and 2018, a basically a 10-year period, uh, the inflation-adjusted prices increased. These were 600 brand-name drugs. The list prices increased by 159 percent. Net prices up by 60 percent, and they did offer discounts. But this is always this is the the the, the beware of this. If someone says I'm going to jack the price up. But uh, there will be a discount that uh, will offset it, so you won't pay any more. Well, maybe at first, but those discounts rarely do actually offset. But 159% uh, over 10 years uh, increase in prices. My salary did not go up 159% in the past 10 years. No. Uh, and I suspect if you're listening to us, yours didn't either. They are making a lot of money. Cost of living didn't go up. I mean, just regular yeah, well, they mentioned Humira, uh, which is uh, the world's best-selling drug. Makes uh, more money than any other. This is a, a medicine we use for inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and so forth. Uh, they're going to increase the price on it by 7.4% for 2020. Now, the federal government has asked them to keep these uh, price increases less than 10%. But if you look at what they have done, in 2018 and 2019, they increased the price of this drug a combined 19.1%. You had 7.4%, uh, and, and you're running now 26.5% over three years increase in the price. And what justifies that? What are they doing different? Absolutely no justification, so, according to analysis from the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Uh, no, there, there is no justification. The justification is they can get it. People will pay for it. People will, will pay, pay that much it. money because Humira is a good drug. Now, final thing, as we finish this segment, uh, you need to know this came from actually also on March 3rd, but a different journal, the AMA Internal Medicine Journal. Uh, they looked at publicly available data on campaign contributions, uh, 1999 to 2018. Pharmaceutical companies spend $4.7 billion. That's an average of $233 million per year lobbying the U.S. federal government, $233 million per year lobbying the government, $414 million on contributions to presidential and congressional candidates and national party committees and outside spending groups, and then another $877 million on contributions to state candidates and committees. So when you put that many millions of dollars, this is the reason you can preserve a system that is, in fact, blatantly unfair to people who are sick makes absolutely no sense. And our solution is to import drugs from Canada because pretty much all this money has flowed in and everyone is 
on that gravy train. You cannot run for office without those kind of serious dollars. No, but it, I mean, it's unethical. So while you're in quarantine, call your representative and tell them that you want drug prices lowered. That's right. right? And uh, write letters, <laughs> whatever, whatever you like to do to communicate. Yeah. This is outrageous. All right. It is time once again. Sneeze into your elbow. Wash your hands and uh, disinfect the entire area. We'll be back with our third and final fractional portion on Moorhead State Public Radio. Support for MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. The Northeast AHEC connects students to careers, professionals to communities, and communities to better health. The Northeast AHEC strives to improve the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals through community and academic educational partnerships. More information is available online at neahec.org. Hi, and welcome back to the third and final fractional portion of Health Matters. I'm Shelley Irving. I'm Dr. Tony Weaver. We are here to be your virtual companion during your quarantine. This is the Health Matters Quarantine Show. We're here to bring up interesting things that you should think about. And as Shelley said, why not, since you've got plenty of time on your hands right now, why not call your elected representatives and tell them to shelve that pharmaceutical contribution the millions of dollars they're getting for their campaign fund and so forth and lobbying and vote for something that really people care about. That is, let's take care of our sick people here in the United States and let them purchase their medicines without going bankrupt. Um, so that is uh, the name of the show. Our sponsor for the final time, the top 10 causes of death. That's in 2018. It looks like there may be some movement in some of these in 2020. We will see as the year progresses. First of all, our top 10, beginning at number 10, suicide, 1.7%. Kidney disease, 1.8%. Influenza and pneumonia, 2.1%. Diabetes, 3%. Alzheimer disease, 4.3% of all deaths. Cerebral vascular disease, 5.2%. Chronic lower respiratory diseases, this is emphysema and lung diseases, 5.6% of all deaths. Accidents and unintentional injuries, a big uh, grab bag, uh, everything from car crashes and gun violence all the way up to drug overdoses, 5.9% of all deaths. Then the big two. Cancer is number two, 599,000 deaths, 21.1% of all deaths uh, in 2018 were due to cancer and lung cancer, far and away the leading cause among men, the leading cause among women. And number one, heart disease, 655,000 deaths, 23.1% of all deaths. Now, both cancer and heart disease are declining as a percentage, but still uh, the numbers here, we went from 5% up to 21 and 23%. Uh, these are our big two. That's our sponsor, the top 10 causes of death in 2018. Now, I had to get my outrage out, so now I, I want to bring you some just some neutral health news. Neutral, things. so you're in a better mood now. It's going to be yeah. I, I, I'm not angry. Not too positive, about... <laughs> not too negative. Just right in the middle. Yeah, I'm not too okay. angry about this one. Right. You know, we have gone back and forth about fish oil. Fish oil. It appears, first of all, uh, we learned that people who live in countries where they ate a lot of fish seem to have lower rates of heart disease and stroke, uh, lower blood pressure. So they figured, well, the fish did something good, and they figured it was those omega-3 fatty acids in the fish. And so, of course, the American solution to this was, well, forget about eating fish because they taste fishy. Let's just put this stuff in a capsule, and then we can have a cheeseburger and an official oil capsule. Because that's the exact same thing as eating <laughs> a fish. 
fresh fish in your diet. <laughs> Pretty much. The problem was um, obviously a bunch of problems. One, it's we're eating cheeseburgers. But the second thing is the uh, fish oil capsules, nobody really checks to see what's in them. I mean, it's it's fish oil, but how much omega-3s, uh, how standardized is it, and so forth. And so the early studies, they could not tell whether or not it actually did what the fish did. And so a lot of people who had recommended fish oil supplements, I, I think soured on that recommendation. Then along came Vesepa. Vesepa. This is a carefully controlled. And they've got, uh, it's always, there's this underwater research lab with a uh, sprangle by sunlight uh, where people in white coats walk back and forth with test tubes. And they make a fish oil that is carefully controlled. The What they say, the, the, the people that do this, they say uh, it, is, uh, it has a different ratio. Uh, of the uh, uh, the various omega acids uh, as opposed to just the supplements, uh, the omega-3 supplements. This is carefully controlled. It is uh, inspected by the FDA. It is an FDA-approved prescription fish oil. You cannot just go buy this fish oil. You have to see a healthcare provider who will write a prescription for fish oil. Now, you could eat fish, but let's not... Get fresh fish. I'm yeah, not doing anything crazy. Yeah. But at any rate, uh, they, in fact, they did a trial of their carefully controlled fish oil, and they were able to lower rates of heart attack. So you may have seen their advertisements. Like I said, the lab people in the white coats tell you that you shouldn't be fooling around with amateur fish oil. You need the FDA-approved Vesepa. It's the only fish oil on the market that has that type of scientific research. And they did get a good study. I will admit that, but it annoys me because I just have in the back of my mind that this is fish oil. You know, no matter how they how much they standardize it, if we had good quality fish oil, we ought to be able to replicate this and you wouldn't have to spin an arm and a leg. Well, here comes out of the British Medical Journal published March 4th. They call it a prospective cohort study. Really, cohort, remember, is two groups of people, one who do something and the other one who don't. And you just watch them. You didn't tell them what to do, but they decided to do one thing. And then you follow the people that do and the people who don't and see what happens. Well, this was I almost half a million men and women in the United Kingdom who were in the biobank study. And when they started that back in 2006, they asked them, do you take fish oil supplements? Didn't ask. They, I mean, they had a bunch of different brands and different uh, products and so forth. But do you take some non-prescription fish oil supplement? They asked them and then they followed them. And uh, what they found, uh, I'll just read this, that they wound up with uh, 40 427,678 people who completed the study and filled out all the forms. The ratios uh, for people who used fish oil, 13% lower all-cause mortality, 16% lower cardiovascular mortality, 7% lower cardiovascular events. And as far as the events go, if you had high blood pressure, your drop was greater than the people who didn't have high blood pressure. So once again, the plain old, cheap old fish oil supplements are look to have some evidence that they may be beneficial. Now, Vasepa may be better, but Vasepa, being an FDA-approved prescription drug, like all the others that we just finished talking about, is way overpriced. It is outrageously priced. Your insurance may cover it. Good for you. But still, you shouldn't have to pay that much money for Fish, fish oil. oil, right? Yeah, you could probably eat fresh fish, and it it might be cheaper. Bite your tongue, eating I, I, fresh fish. I, I know. I, I'm just you know, if you're looking at cost, 
no way are we recommending people actually eat fresh fish. This is well, America. Maybe, maybe not, I, don't, I don't know where you grew up, well, but I grew up in America. Well, maybe not fresh <laughs> fish right here locally in Moorhead. Maybe not. But, you maybe know. not. And keep in mind, if, if you do decide, I don't know, you, you decide to go completely crazy and actually eat fish, remember it's not fried fish. It is not fish right. sticks. It is not uh, fish that is in a geometric shape. It is, in fact, a fish that is baked. Minced fish, none of that. It, yeah. You know, it actually, it, it's actual fish. Yeah. Tuna is wonderful. Salmon. Salmon is great, but uh, but not fried. Not mm. fried. That That is the, the, the one thing. Uh, at any rate, I, I wanted to bring that up because I've been, I have been, well, I, I told you I wouldn't preach, but I have been annoyed. Uh, at the prescription fish oil people now uh, for a year, and, and finally I have at least some ammunition because uh, they had completely discredited uh, a fish oil supplement. I think fish is still a great idea and uh, strongly recommend you eat fish when you have that opportunity. Uh, I think it works better than anything because it also tastes good as opposed to uh, pills. Next up, salt. Salt. Yeah, and this one's going to take a while, but I want to run through it. Uh, this was an interview with Professor Fang He, I believe that's right, F-E-N-G-H-E. And so those of you who speak, uh, I think that's Chinese. I, I'm sure I've got it wrong, but I know Fang Shui, so I figured this is Fang He. Works at Wolfson Institute of Preventive Medicine in the London School of Medicine and Dentistry and the Queen Mary University of London. And Dr. He, she and her colleagues, uh, they did a study and reported it in the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, uh, an analysis of 133 different studies on salt, on eating salt or not eating salt. Now, 133 studies, 12,000 participants. Now, keep in mind, we just did a fish oil study with 427,000 people. The best they could do with their salt study is 12,000. I mean, this is the it's absolutely the best. Now, the one thing, uh, the 427,000, all they have to do is fill out a form and then live or die or have a heart attack or not. That was a pretty simple one. This one, they did collect a 24-hour urine to look for sodium and see how much salt they actually took in. They're not just asking them to check a box, do you use salt? So that's that extra step uh, weeded out a lot of the research studies on salt because a lot of them just asked, do you use salt food? And in this case, uh, uh, they had the 24-hour urine data. And so that what they found was there was a pretty clear, they call it dose-response relationship. The more salt you take, the higher your blood pressure is. Okay. Just in these uh, 133 studies, when they added up all the data, that's what they found. And this is what Professor Feng Hei, she says uh, about this. She says, uh, if you look at societies, she says, isolated to tribes. And again, her English is not great. What she's saying is, if you look at uh, Aboriginal tribes, they don't have any added salt in their diet. Their blood pressure, average blood pressure for the adult population, 90 over 60. That would be considered a low blood pressure in, in the United States. What's wrong with you? You Maybe you're dehydrated. You should drink more water. No way that 90 over 60 Eat is normal. Eat some salt. Eat some salt. Get that blood pressure up. But 90 over 60 works fine for them. And, uh, you know, we say, well, yeah, but they, they get eaten by, you know, bears or something like that, and so they don't live a long time. Said, so, But no, if you look at it year for year, if you compare younger uh, people who are civilized and eat processed foods and eat salt with uh, people who uh, are, uh, again, these are isolated tribes where they have not adopted a Western diet. That's the key thing. They, uh, at, at every age, their blood pressure is lower. So it's not that uh, uh, they don't live long enough to have high blood pressure. They are lower blood pressure even uh, when they are young. Their salt, as best they can tell, they're taking in about one gram a day, less than one gram a day. 
the average salt intake in the U.S. is about 10 grams per day. That's a big difference. It is. Less than one in uh, uh, people not on a Western diet, around 10 in a Western diet. Uh, and the recommendation are, is what? Less than three, less than two? Well, we're, we're trying to get there. Right now, the World Health Organization says less than five grams per day. So we're just trying to get it half of what it is. I mean, that was just arbitrary. Yeah. Not that uh, less than five is safe, but less than five is half of what we're doing now. Yeah. In the U.S., uh, she says, and I did not know this, she said it's six per day. Uh, U.K., it's also six per day. In Western countries like the U.S., about 80% of your salt is already added to your food by the food industry. Salt makes food taste better. So especially if you're trying to watch your calories, one of the ways to make that food palatable without adding a lot of calories is throw in the salt. salt. So 80% of the food, and this is what I, I was taught this in medical school. This has not changed over the past 30 years. 80% of your salt intake happens whether you use a salt shaker or not. You can put it down. You can throw it away. You can cook without salt. But if you have processed foods, they're going to salt them, and 80% of your intake is going to come from that. So, again, of our 10 grams per day, eight of it, keep in mind, non-Western diet from uh, Aboriginal, from isolated uh, populations, uh, less than one gram of salt per day. We're doing 10. About eight of that comes from food uh, salt that's already added before we even— uh, Canned soup, canned vegetables, Right. All this that. is This is added before it even leaves the grocery store shelf. Now, this is interesting. In 2003, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, started a salt reduction program. They set incrementally lower salt targets for over 85 categories of food. So, you know, it's interesting. While while you're, you know, keep in mind, uh, the people listening uh, to our show, this is targeted for people who are quarantined by the government. So they know the government has the authority to do these things. Maybe it's a voluntary quarantine. Good for you. But uh, uh, the government does have the ability to quarantine you uh, if you uh, break your voluntary quarantine. Uh, And what they did was they just they decided they were going to dial down the salt you take in. You don't get that 80 percent of your salt. Uh, coming from food. A small reduction, 10 to 20% reduction, repeated at two to three year intervals. Uh, And the UK salt reduction program has been successful. From 2003 to 2011, salt intake in the population reduced by 15%. Uh, They went from 9.5 grams down to 8.1 grams uh, in 2011. Now, that has led, in her mind, uh, according to her research, to a significant reduction in the blood pressure in the population. In the entire population, their blood pressure has dropped by about 2.7 millimeters. Wow. That's the top number, the systolic. Yeah. So average drop of across the entire population of the United Kingdom, 2.7 millimeters lower blood pressure. And so they're headed very, very slowly for that 90 over 60 that we see in people who don't eat salt at all. Well, you got to do it slowly. You don't want to do that rapidly. Yeah, I will tell you, you know, I've been looking at this for a long time. There are people, first of all, there are people who are very intelligent, know a lot about this, and say salt is not related to blood pressure. Salt is not related to mortality. Uh, We are picking on the wrong thing. We should not really be restricting salt. We have had some misadventures in diet before. You know, we decided we would eliminate fat from the diet to treat cholesterol. Well, cholesterol is actually mostly made inside the body. We were not really moving the cholesterol very much, but we were putting people on high-carb diets and creating diabetics. That was not a good move. No. Uh, So we've been wrong before. We've absolutely been wrong before. 
She feels, though, you look at people who have a low salt diet and their blood pressure and their cardiovascular risk is much lower. Can we do that without getting eaten by a bear? Well, there's other things that come along with that, too. They're probably more physically active. They're probably, their weight's probably lower. They probably have a higher muscle mass. They're probably outside more, getting more sunshine. So there's there's a lot of other things that come with that. Would you be in favor of the government actually uh, decreeing that the salt in these, uh, um, they had 85 different foods, they had to have a lower salt intake? I wouldn't have a problem with that or sugar or reducing the the size of sodas and that sort of thing. I don't have a problem with that. You can still add the salt if you want to. So, So they aren't really taking away your freedom to use salt. They're just reducing the hidden salt that... You know, it's frustrating, isn't it? I mean, in the first fractional portion, we talked about facial recognition and uh, thermal cameras and so forth to try to end an epidemic. Second fractional portion, we talked about government intervention in the free market uh, to prevent uh, pharmaceutical companies from making uh, kind of outlandish profits. And now we're talking about government uh, intervention in, in the diet. It is The problem is our current lifestyle is leading us to a very, very over- uh, uh, overly expensive healthcare system. We're, we're treating too many illnesses too late in in um, at too late a stage, uh, and we could fix it. But in order to do it, we would have to give up some of those freedoms—the freedom to do stupid stuff. And we, more than anything else, we love being free to do stupid stuff. Yes, we do. And on that thought, thanks to our special thanks to our Moorhead State Public Radio producer, Shamari Mosley, to Eric Bilbrey, who wrote our toe-tapping Health Matters theme song, and to you, our loyal radio fans. Remember to show your support for Health Matters by visiting our digital empire. That is WMKY.org to listen to the show, or Facebook, it's HM Radio Show. For our radio crew and the supportive folks at the Northeast AHEC, thanks for listening to our show. And remember, the spread of a mysterious radio show, which appears to have originated in Moorhead, Kentucky, has been made with international alarm as more listeners are being reported. At a press conference in Geneva, Switzerland, the World Health Organization declared a public emergency of international concern over the radio show. We don't know what sort of damage this radio show could do if it were to spread in a country with a weaker health system, stated officials. The World Health Organization is dedicated to help countries prepare for that possibility. The effects of the radio show depend upon your age and your general health, as well as what type of radio you use. Most people have had a mild reaction to our show and don't even visit a doctor. This makes it difficult to determine just how dangerous the show is. Regardless of the danger, public officials urge you to take the show seriously. Many people have turned off their radios to avoid exposure. Well, whatever you do, do not take health matters lying down. Get out this week, make a healthy change in your life, and tune in next week for our treatise on how to fall down the stairs in six simple steps, and also for more medical research on Moorhead State Public Radio. for Health Matters on MSPR comes from the Northeast Kentucky Area Health Education Center located at St. Clair Healthcare in Moorhead. Additional information on the Northeast AHEC is available online at neahec.org.